This morning a question came up about happiness. Anybody remember? So my question to you is, is everybody happy? Happy, happy. Happy, happy. Uh, I have no less authority on this subject to give you the answer about happiness uh, than uh, Calvin of Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is climbing a tree with his friend, Hobbes, and he says, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. Continues, I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. And Hobbes responds, of course, you're supposed to be at school. (laughs) At which time Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. (laughs) I'd like to talk a little tonight about happiness. Maybe not the way we usually think of happiness. The way I'm going to talk about it has something to do with with this other teaching from the poet Wei Wu Wei, where he says, why are you so unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you do and think is for yourself. And there isn't one. So somewhere between Calvin and Wei Wu Wei, we will kind of weave uh, a conversation about happiness. And I really like to give this talk, some of you probably heard this talk before, because I I find that I need to, for my own practice uh, and understanding, I need to continually remind myself and clarify what does it mean by happy in the, um, in the teachings of the Buddha. What does that mean? The Buddha made some very clear teachings about happiness. He said there are two basic kinds of happiness. And I'm going to talk about those, and I'm going to try to weave these basic kinds of happiness through his life to show how he, just like each of us, as we're sitting on our cushion, he's sitting on his cushion, how he came to realize more and more refined, a more refined understanding of what happiness is. But he narrowed it, I'll give you a sneak preview, he narrowed it down to these two basic types. One he called, well, first of all, happiness in the um, language of the sutras, the word for it is sukha. And sukha has the meaning of happiness or comfort or ease. So you get a little hint right there, happiness, comfort, or ease. And of course, sukha is the, you might think in most cases, is the opposite of dukkha. 
and how we go during our day from dukkha to sukha and back to dukkha again. And we call that sukha dukkha. <laughs> anyway, so. But the first kind of sukha that the Buddha talk, talked about was what he called lokiya sukha. And lokiya means the world. It's the happiness of the world. And the characteristic of lokiya sukha is that the happiness of the world is the happiness of conditions. It's the kind of happiness that depends on satisfying some hunger. That if you don't satisfy that hunger, you're not happy. If you do satisfy it, you get some happiness. Now, we probably had thousands of those today, those moments of lokiya sukha. He contrasts lokiya sukha with the other kind of sukha called lokutara sukha. Lokutara, loka still has that, um, loka means uh, place or world. Lokutara means beyond the power and influence of the world or unstuck from the world. Which means to beyond the conditions. A happiness that that is either free of hunger completely or does not depend on satisfying hunger. So that's the basis of this talk. It's the basis of the happiness of the Buddha. So if you look at the Buddha's life, he came to a place that is, was much like us sitting here on this, in this retreat. He was sitting with himself, and he was dealing with and faced with what we are here, which is the heavenly messengers. You know, the heavenly messengers in the Buddha's teaching, the the beings that came to him that shook his mind into that deep inquiry about where deep, true happiness was to be found, was the messenger of of an extremely sick person, someone about his own age who looked like they were ready to die, extremely ill. He saw an extremely old person, and he saw a corpse, a dead person. And as we sit here at this retreat, you don't have to look very far to be visited by the heavenly messenger of the aches and pains of our bodies, the painfulness of being in a body, the inevitable change of our bodies. I've been especially aware, and this is no criticism, but I'm especially aware that we are an aging sangha. I've been at least leading these retreats for about 15 years, and it's amazing how the, maybe others have talked about this, but the way that the the waves of brown are turning into waves of gray as I do the big wave of my eyes across the room. But we can experience that face-to-face with the changing, in a sense, uncontrollable nature of our body as we sit here. And so, so much why uh, Eugene's talk last night about using the body as our domain of inquiry to examine its nature, to settle into it. Of course, it's, it's both. Um, it's not only a, a place for the heavenly messengers, but it's also a place of sukha, 
of the potential of sukha. Not only that, but a potential of lokutara sukha, a happiness that doesn't depend on what happens in your body. Anyway, so the Buddha was faced with the heavenly messengers of sickness, old age, and death, and it shook him up, and it, it made him ask a question. You know, if we get old and we change all the time and our bodies get sick and we die, where is there a reliable refuge to be found? How can I find any relief in that? And if, if this all happens, that means everything that a human being does in the course of their life, all the fun and games, all the extraordinary beauty, all the pain, all the suffering, seems to be not very substantial. And the Buddha very clearly talked about the happiness of living in the world, of being a worldly person. Uh, and that includes a monastic person. They're also living in the world. They're, they're in, on this planet. They've taken birth. And he said that there is an amazing amount of pleasure, comfort, ease that can be experienced in this world. There can be an array of experiences. And in fact, the capacity for all of us to be able to enjoy the pleasure of our senses, that kind of happiness, is really a result of a certain purity in our actions, the fact that maybe we have been generous, we've been kind, that we've taken care of ourselves and taken care of others, this has freed us to a degree. Of course, there are, there's a continuum here. It's freed us to a degree that we can be available and open at times to be able to appreciate sights. I mean, visual phenomena is incredible, especially here at Spirit Rock. I, even walking over in the dark tonight, looking up at the sky, and then smelling, and then, and then hearing the sounds are amazing. The capacity to, be, to enjoy that and experience that is really a wonderful gift. And the Buddha talked about all kinds of, of happiness that a human being can experience. I actually made a little list here. The happiness of family life, pleasure. Again, one has to be, have a certain purity to be available to this. Happiness of being a recluse, a monastic. There's great happiness in that. If you read, I read this book once that was all about the different disciples of the Buddha, and it had a story about each of them. A theme running through the whole book was the sense of happiness that, that existed in that community. So it's not, even though you may feel in your pursuit of this uh, awakening process, you may feel at times kind of grim. In fact, you know, sometimes I look out in the room and it does look pretty grim. And I think maybe that's what the question was, was speaking about today. And in truth, it's possible that at times we've all kind of fallen into what I call the Vipassana trance, where we're not very awake, we're not very... And you can kind of slip into this practice as grim and heavy and dark. Actually, I brought uh, Alan Watts to wake us up. He says the trouble with religion today 
is that it's so mixed up with grim duties. You do it because it's good for you. It's a kind of self-punishment. Does it feel like that sometimes? He says, though, meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. He says it's a kind of digging the present. It's a kind of grooving with the eternal now. (laughs) Now, how many times did you feel that today? I'm grooving with the eternal now. And it brings us into a state of peace where we can understand that the point of life, the place where it's at, did any of you feel that? The place where it's at is simply here and now. Now, it's easy to slip into that kind of trance. And in fact, if you do, and it's something to perhaps be vigilant about, if you do, if you find that you're just getting into this dull cruise, then shake it out, refresh yourself. You may break your concentration for a moment, but concentration is meant to be broken sometimes. It's not reliable anyway. So, it's about being awake. (laughs) The Buddha talked about all kinds of happiness. And this is what we can discover even on our cushions. But he said that there were three things that we need to know about the different pleasures that we experience, both on retreat and in our daily life. First, to experience their enjoyment, to know that we can enjoy things. That's an important aspect of pleasure. Two is to understand their defects or their danger. And three is to understand our freedom from them. So you may get a hint in talking about the different happinesses of the world, lokutara sukha, different pleasures that we experience. You may get a hint that from this freedom from them, that in the, in the Buddha's teachings and in his understanding that occurred from his own life, that even the most delicious experience of the senses, as lucky as we are to be able to experience them, is subsumed under the deeper understanding of the word dukkha. And the deeper understanding speaks of the insubstantiality of experiences, the impermanence of experiences, the unreliability of different experiences of the the senses. And this is what we recognize as we sit. We see that even that most sublime experience that you had today, if you had one, where is it? You can see that the, the worst experience that you had today, by present evidence, it's hard to know that it ever happened. So we can begin to know for ourselves the nature of Lokiya Sukha, that it is, um, it is both pleasurable, but its danger is, because it's pleasurable, that we get attached to it. And in fact, we are, from the day we're born, barraged with the hypnotic-inducing propaganda that if you continue to experience more and more 
pleasures of the senses, you will be happy. And there's a little, it's a little bit misleading because of that defect part. Anything you experience changes. It doesn't satisfy us. The second thing, it actually increases our dependency on pleasurable experiences for our happiness. It increases our hunger. We come by this attachment to, to lokiya sukha, the happiness of conditions, we, the happiness of sense pleasures. We come by it honestly. As I said, we are completely inundated with, with encouragement to shop, to buy, to go, to have. Our identity seems to be more tethered to having than being. And I notice even the people in my life, the people who are, I would say are having the hardest times, are those who are, have less resources. Now, I'm certainly not recommending that you have less resources and, and uh, be happy with that. You can be, you, hopefully you can come to have happiness in whatever conditions you find yourself. Just to, uh, to reinforce, or just to remind you of, of the incredible inundation of this, uh, this push for consumption and this push for attachment to, to the pleasures of the senses, I thought that I would bring a few little advertisements that, that illustrate some of what goes on today. In fact, the way that the, the whole uh, commercial world uses the very things that we hold near and dear, our meditation practice, our spiritual aspirations, uh, the fact of, of old age, sickness, and death, all the things that we contemplate and reflect about are being used now in the world of commerce to encourage us to keep greedy and to keep wanting. Here's just an example. This one is a, um, at the top the caption reads, there are many paths to reach independent thought. Meditation, yoga, and calling 888-439-9940. Call or go online to learn more about the new 2000 Mercury Sable and receive a gift from Barnes & Noble. It doesn't stop there. I, I have to give you a, a little, you know, an immersion in this, in this uh, teaching here. Because this is a, in the larger print it says, because peace and quiet aren't going to come looking for you. And then in small print, your brother-in-law is staying another two weeks. 9-11 puts you on hold. The cable company didn't show up again. That's life. If you want peace and quiet, you just have to find ways to make it happen, like Avalon. It's Toyota's ultimate way to escape in comfort (laughs) and get ready for your next dose of the real world. (laughs) Last but not least, a little boy monk. Some of you have heard this before and seen this. 
the top it says, for centuries people have journeyed thousands of miles in search of insight. In parentheses. Pity they didn't think to have it delivered. (laughs) (laughs) Underneath. What's the meaning of life? What's the path to eternal wisdom? What is the yin and what is yang? Some believe the answers lie at the roof of the world, a remote mountaintop in Tibet, a lost valley in Nepal. Mind you, the journey there is no easy thing. There are rivers to be crossed, gorges to be spanned, all manner of frightful weather to be endured. Might we suggest a less arduous course of action to gain the insights you seek? Might we suggest a subscription to the Wall Street Journal? <laughs> Last but not least is an advertisement for uh, Pioneer car stereos. It says, buy a Pioneer car stereo now because someday you'll be dead. <laughs> Bo Lozoff puts our attachment to Lokia Sukha in this way. He says, for one thing, our consumer culture encourages us from the time we're born to have ceaseless desires. To put it simply, we want so much all the time that we've not even noticed how much quality of life we've given up, how much peace of mind we've sacrificed, how much fun with our family we've forfeited in order to have the right shoes, cellular phones, TVs in every room, sexy cars, all the stuff that counts for zero in the deeper part of ourselves, in our kingdom of heaven. American life especially has been about keeping up with the Joneses. But it's time we noticed that the Joneses are not happy. One of their kids is on drugs. Mr. Jones is on antidepressants. The parents are in divorce court, and Mrs. Jones is taking anti-anxiety medication. This is no joke. This is the reality of the American dream for most people in the 1990s when this was written. Time to wake up from such a bad dream. There's a, a denial of the heavenly messengers, a denial of our aging and death and the ephemeral nature of our experiences in this continual pursuit and attachment to the pleasures of the senses. And it's not the pleasures of the senses that the Buddha talked about as being so so problematic. It's the fact that we devote ourselves to these senses, that we limit the possibility of happiness by being stuck in that gerbil wheel of becoming, of more and having and losing and wanting more again. And so we miss the incredible possibility, uh, the birthright of a human being to experience much more refined levels of happiness.
So the Buddha saw this predicament while sitting. Sometimes we have to, I think part of the form of this is to kind of force us to really face how, how fleeting everything is. In his case, it was, his mind was turned by this visit with the heavenly messengers. And he, he realized that he could not just keep going along the way he was. He could not become a king and go into his father's business and then keep expanding and having more. He, he knew that that would not bring him real relief. And he went to his father, as you probably all know the story, and he begged his father to um, relieve him of the uh, obligation to be a king and take over for him. And you can sense in, his, in the way that his um, mind turned and the way his, his urgency arose that th- this urgency, this uh, willingness to see what's true, it seems to be an essential ingredient in finding happiness, in finding the happiness of the Buddha. You can sense the fire in, his, in this passage that he's said to have um, said to his father. He says, Father, a day upon the throne would be like sitting on a bed of coal, a hot bed of coals for me. If my heart has no peace, how can I fulfill yours or the people's trust in me? I have seen how quickly time passes, and I know my youth is no different. Please grant me your permission. A day upon the throne would be like sitting on a hot bed of coals for me. How many of us have that that urgency, that sense, I really want to know. I really want to be free. I really want to find that reliable refuge. In his case, he finally left home and started doing meditation practice, heard some teachings, heard about some great teachers, and he started doing their practices, a lot of which, uh, a lot of elements are in the practice that we're doing here. And very quickly in doing his practice, certain concentration practice, he began to enter into deep states of concentration, applying that interest, that spirit of investigation, that desire for freedom, he applied it to the awakening of his mind and immediately started to experience what's often called samadhi or refined states of concentration. It's been translated, one of the ways that it was talked about, as unmixed happiness. And he experienced a kind of happiness that was free from the ordinary kinds of suffering that most of us experience. It happened in his own mind. And I, I have a feeling that today, at different times, you probably tasted a little bit of this unmixed happiness. The happiness of a mind, a heart that is composed and quiet, that is really not being pulled, not being inundated with the um, hindrances of wanting what's not there, of not wanting what's there, just moments. The Buddha recognized these moments of concentration, of composure, absent that ordinary kind of suffering. He saw this as a more refined kind of happiness than the happiness of the world of the senses, 
ordinary sense pleasures. And not only was it more refined, but he saw, and what made it more refined, is that it could last for long periods of time, in his case. And that is a possibility of practice, that we can enter into states of concentration, absorption, where for long periods of time there is this unmixed happiness, free of ordinary suffering in the the way that we experience. But he began to see in his own practice, as you probably will in in your own or have already today, is that even that most refined state of concentration ultimately is subject to those same laws that he saw were operating in the other in the world of pleasure. He saw that even the most delicious experience passed away, could not be controlled, couldn't be considered a reliable refuge. So to aim for that kind of experience would be to limit, again, the potential for a real kind of freedom. These states of concentration, again, are wonderful, just like the ordinary sense pleasures. And these states of concentration can be applied and mixed, mingled with love, with compassion, with joy, with balance of mind, with equanimity, and they can grow into a boundless sense of connection. Again, they're wonderful, refined, superior to, to our, our most, uh, our displeasures that we're used to, but ultimately unreliable. So the Buddha didn't stop there, even though that was really the limit of what was available at his time. Nobody taught anything beyond those states of mind. But he took it upon himself because of that that urgency, and I think each of us, in our own way, uh, will not be satisfied until we're satisfied. We'll not really stop our search until we really feel that 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 deepest thirst that no other pleasure can quench until that deepest thirst is quenched. But in his case, he went out on his own. And as the story goes, he tried starving himself to maybe transcend himself that way. And that whole idea just caused his mind to get tight and his body to get skinny and sick. And saw that he became very rigid and saw that you can't really practice with a rigid mind. And what reminded him of his rigidity is the, a time that he remembered when he was a, a young boy, where he was, he was lying under a, some kind of tree, a cherry apple tree or something, and his mind was very composed and steady, and he was well-fed, and he knew that this was a, an ingredient. It was important to have an ease of being, some, some smoothness, some calm, and be well-fed, not overfed but well-fed, in order to to apply one's uh, observing power for awakening.
So we finally took some food and he sat down at the Bodhi tree, as I think others have talked about on the retreat, and was uh, sitting under the Bodhi tree, committed himself not to get up until he was awake, until he found that reliable refuge. He settled back, and when he sat there, he aroused the exact same concentration, at least it's my impression, that we're doing here. Aroused the same kind of mindfulness, mindfulness of breathing, and he, he entered uh, a certain state of composure and steadiness. And then he was, of course, as we are while we sit here, he was assaulted by the, the demons of lust and fear and wanting and this and that. And his, he was faced with the demons in the body. Does it sound familiar? Does it seem any different? I mean, the Buddha was really a human being like us. It was not, he's not some kind of, some kind of celestial being. So he sat there just like us. And with a mind that was composed and steady and mindful, he began to pay attention to the flow of experience. And whatever his mind began to tell him about himself, the story of his life, whatever he wanted, he began to see everything come into his mind and everything go out of his mind. Everything arising in his body, examining the the nature of the body, and noticing how things appeared and disappeared. And as he began to notice how everything that came into his mind and body appeared and disappeared, and not one of the ideas that came to him he could actually define him. Could, he couldn't be limited by those ideas. When he saw how empty they were, how insubstantial they were, and in that, in that noticing, he began to sense, and again, I'm, using, I'm taking a little liberty here, he began to sense the, the natural luminosity of the mind. The, the mind, his mind began to kind of shine in its clarity and began to reflect whatever came into it very clearly. And I have a feeling everyone here, to some degree, in some moments today, we're able to notice something clearly without interfering with it, without grasping, without pushing away, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought. To just know it simply without adding a story about yourself. Did that happen today? Well, of course it happened in a very strong way for the Buddha, but it's no different. And the same, two, the same forces are being nourished and fed as you sit here. And it's funny how you may look around and everyone may look like the land of the living dead. Or as Jack used to talk about, uh, it looked like, I guess, one, I forgot who said it, but it looked like the backward of a mental hospital, you know, see people moving around slowly. But actually, there's amazing power growing in each of us. We're like these little Buddha plants that are, that are 
being nourished by the silence and slowly, slowly. And we have the evidence for it because you come into interviews and look into our eyes, or we look into your eyes. And just even in the course of, for those of you who just got here, six days or seven days, your eyes are luminous, your eyes are radiant, you're tender, soft, open to and much more welcoming to life as it presents itself. It may not feel that way on the inside, but it's so obvious to us that you're grappling moment to moment with the demons of, of likes and dislikes and your body and everything is being transformed slowly into, uh, each of us is being transformed into like a deva, a luminous being. There's more light, more air, more space. Anyway, so the Buddha began to sense the power and the radiance of his own mind, shining in its clarity. And this kind of clarity represents a, When I spoke earlier about the pleasures of the senses being the fruit of having um, acted in kindness or um, in ways that don't cause harm, uh, being a good person in general, that it makes us open and available to experience pleasures. Well, this capacity to see the arising and passing of different experiences, (coughs) to sit quietly and notice things come and go, is, uh, at least in the Buddha's teachings, a reflection of what he called purity of view, the capacity to be so careful, so attentive, that one experiences just the, the immediate sense experience, the eye and what's heard very quickly, the nose and what's smelled, the mouth and what's heard, the tongue and what's tasted, the body and what's felt. Noticing these six experiences that just arise and pass, and the consciousness that knows them arising and passing, but leaves no trace, that reveals itself to be completely selfless, that there's nothing behind it. That what we are, that the revealing understanding that what we are is this process of endlessly changing experience. And in that clarity and brightness, and in that understanding, the mind, in those moments, falls into a a kind of joy. It's called the joy of equanimity, the joy of non-reactiveness. And what was significant for the Buddha at this point, and this goes back to the, com- to the talk about happiness. What was significant is that that moment of noticing the arising and passing of these different experiences without pushing, without pulling, without creating a story about them, he recognized as a, as a glimpse of freedom. As that moment when he crossed the threshold from lokiya sukha, the happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way, to lokutara sukha, a happiness that didn't depend on whatever it was that was coming into his mind, didn't depend on what was coming into his body, that he saw that the happiness didn't have much to do with what's happening, but had everything to do with it being known or noticed.
in the Anguttara Nikaya Sutta, the Buddha put it this way, Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned, unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate their mind. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So with this joy of equanimity, this taste of Lokutara Sukha, a happiness that didn't depend on what was happening, he saw that this was a more refined happiness. And this kind of happiness became the gateway to the highest happiness. As he saw that he could not be defined by the thoughts and the images and the sensations and the moods and everything that arose and passed, his mind withdrew its its clinging and attachment. And the question, and again I'm taking some liberty here, and the question that naturally would arise in that, if I can't be defined by my body, by my mind, then who am I? What am I? I think Eugene spoke of this question. And in that moment of withdrawing his mind from the, from the fascination with what was entering into it, what was coming and going, his mind turned on itself. It enfolded. And in a flash of insight, he realized that that reliable refuge that he had been searching for, for lifetimes, as the teachings go, that that reliable refuge revealed itself as the very nature of his own mind. That he was, as one way of putting it, he was already immersed in the very thing he'd been searching for. A modern uh, poet, Derek Walcott, in his poem, Love After Love, gives a, a kind of, at least to me, gives the flavor of this realization. He says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own mirror, at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored from, for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes, Heal your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. The Buddha wouldn't be so 
foolish to try to put what he experienced into words, so he, he described it in the negative. He said, there is a field of experience beyond the entire field of matter, the entire field of mind, that is neither this world nor another world, nor both, neither moon nor sun. This I call neither arising, nor passing away, nor abiding, neither dying nor rebirth. It's without support, without development, without foundation. This is the end of suffering. This is when the Buddha became Sukhiya, the happy one. A little bit different than our ordinary notions of happiness. So the beauty of the Dharma, the beauty of the very practice that we're doing, is that if you aim, if you, if you don't limit yourself to the ordinary, the places where you have and been invited to and encouraged to, to live, uh, if you don't limit yourself to the pleasures of the senses and aim for the highest kind of happiness, that all the other happiness will come in its wake. And you will be able to experience all the other kinds of happiness with a heart that doesn't cling. And a heart that doesn't cling is friendly with everything connected to everything. I was debating about what to finish with because my, my sense is that the, that the Buddha's recognition of the unborn, the unconditioned, the selflessness of experience revealed to him very directly that there was nothing and no one that existed apart from him, that he could never find, ultimately, a sense of separation. And that absence of self meant the absence of other. And so I think I'll end with, with Robert Hall's wonderful poem called Holy Facts. I am the airwaves. I am the movement of insects and birds. I am what happens before birth. I am the sound before words and the movement of thought. There is only where I come from, and that is no place, for I am before space. And time is only the measurement of my beauty. I am before anything is and what everything becomes. Out of me is the holy child. When you listen, you can hear me. When you receive on your tongue, 
You can taste me. I am what you feel. There is no limit to my happiness, and there is no bottom to my sorrow. No walls imprison me, and no freedom sets me free. For I am already the inside and the outside. Look for me anywhere, and I will be what you see before color and line become form. I am unexplainable. Screams are in me and walks along the sea. Forests are in me and the stars as far as you can see. Baskets of flowers, hammers and nails and carpenters and their smiles. Windows and blades of grass, shoelaces, ice skates, rivers, canals, and fires in lonely caves. Fur blankets and daisies, pinups and staples in Wall Street, and coal mines and rockets. I am the one that thoughts drift within. Everyone knows who I am. So we'll sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.